You're listening to Marks of a Healthy Church, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So over the past two classes, each lesson has begun with a mini-biography on how the individual specifically handles the Word of God. On our first week, we are introduced to Charles Simeon, the humble, faithful pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge for 54 years before he passed away. Simeon's convictions regarding Scripture laid the foundation for our study of expositional preaching. Uh, You'll you'll notice if you've been here all three weeks, the handout uh, has actually stayed the same at the beginning. Uh, I I do find uh, Simeon's conviction about how to handle the Word of God so important to the topic of expositional preaching that I've, I've left it up there. He said, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of Scripture in the passage I am expounding. It's important. That's the foundation of expositional preaching right there. <laughs> Last week we looked at G. Campbell Morgan the Prince of Expositors, as he was known in the English-speaking world. We examined how Morgan's life and ministry could be characterized in two words, hard work. Morgan's faithfulness to work hard in the text introduced us to the heavy lifting that is biblical exegesis. This week will be no different. The man I will introduce you to this morning is one who needs no introduction However, I am going to savor the opportunity to introduce you to him anyways. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born on June 19, 1834. From an early age, he was actually an orphan in a way. His parents never passed away, but they actually couldn't take care of him, so they sent him to live with his grandparents. It was here that he was exposed to the treasures of his grandfather's library. His grandfather had a rich collection of Puritan books. Spurgeon feasted on these books and would forever, for the rest of his life, be a lover of Puritan theology and Puritan writings. Preaching is what Spurgeon is known for, the prince of preachers. Although biased, Spurgeon's son Charles was probably accurate when he said, There is no one that could preach like my father. In in inexhaustible variety, witty wisdom, vigorous proclamation, loving entreaty, and lucid teaching, with a multitude of other qualities, he must, at least in my opinion, ever be regarded as the prince of preachers. Spurgeon preached 600 times before the age of 20. 600 times before he was 20 years old. Throughout his ministry, he would consistently read six large-volume books per week on Puritan theology, and he did so with a phenomenal memory. It was actually said that in these books, if somebody asked Spurgeon where a specific part of that book was, he could tell you which page it was on. Right? Any comparison with this man needs to immediately stop right there. <laughs> Unbelievable. The Lord richly blessed Charles Spurgeon. He was gifted beyond imagination. However... The Lord didn't save him from suffering. He suffered terribly throughout his life. Spurgeon suffered from gout, rheumatism, and Bright's disease, which put him through incredible physical suffering. And it wasn't just the physical suffering. 
he was absolutely publicly ridiculed what was, what was, through what was called the uh, downgrade controversy uh, as he uh, disagreed with some of the Baptist Union or the Baptist Convention's theology. This incredibly inspiring man of faith, he, sorry, he is an incredibly inspiring man of faith, and there is much that can be learned from the Prince of Preachers. Our topic today in part three of expositional preaching is theological reflection. We can look this morning to the Prince of Preachers to introduce us to theological reflection. Spurgeon famously quotes, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? So from every text of Scripture, there is a road to Christ. And my dear brother, your business is, when you get to a text, to say, Now, what is the road to Christ? I have never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if ever I do any good, unless there is a savor of Christ in it. As we will see this morning, Spurgeon's instincts in reading the Bible, like Paul and Jesus before him, are correct. All of Scripture points towards Christ. If you have your handout, you can jot down this graphic as we go, but we've filled out a graphic throughout the, the, the three sessions that we've gone through. And I'll just, I'll just start to fill it out today here, and you can follow along. So we've begun with the text. We began by looking at contextualization, which is, deals with us and now. And the first week, we really looked at some dangers uh, of contextualization if you begin there. Last week, we looked at them and then, meaning the original audience. And this is the process of exegesis. Today, we have the privilege of looking to the cross in the process of of theological reflection. Theological reflection is a third essential part of expositional preaching. Helm gives David Helm gives a solid definition of theological reflection. He says it's an exercise that asks how my passage relates to the Bible as a whole, especially to the saving acts of God through Jesus Christ. After Christ's resurrection, he anonymously joined some of his disciples on a seven-mile walk to a little town called Emus. On this walk, he describes how all scriptures concern him. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Luke 24, starting in verse 25. Luke 24, starting in verse 25. We read of that account, starting in verse 25. It reads, Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Flip down to verse 44. We see it a little bit later with the rest of the eleven. In verse 44 he says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled 
which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Verse 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Jesus clearly understood better than anybody that all of scripture pointed to him. We can also read with the instincts of Paul. The practice of proving all scriptures points towards Christ does not end with Jesus. It is also modeled by the Apostle Paul. In the book of Acts, we read that on three Sabbath days, Paul went in and reasoned with them from the scriptures, proving and persuading that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. What can we learn here from Paul? Well, pastors, I think, can learn from Paul that there is need to reason to prove and persuade. Now, nobody's ever going to be argued, argued into the kingdom of, of God, right? We understand that that is the job of the Holy Spirit and the job of the Holy Spirit alone. However, it is still our responsibility to be persuasive, to be able to look to the scriptures and to prove. We can also learn from Paul that those who handle the word must know their audience, When Paul arrived at Mars Hill in Athens, he was able to preach Christ to an audience with no prior biblical knowledge. Isn't that amazing? Think about that, right? You take for granted so much of the things that you've learned in the past, and yet Paul shows up on Mars Hill, and he can preach Christ to these people who have absolutely no biblical knowledge. It's amazing. Paul, like Christ, believed that all Scripture points towards Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The three tasks undertaken by Paul and Acts prove that theological reflection, like biblical exegesis, is hard work. To reason, to prove, and to persuade. Think about for a minute what that, what that actually entails. What that entails you to have an understanding of. Right? I think some of us avoid this like the black plague. Right? It's like, oh, I don't want to get into a conversation with this person because I'm going to have to give good evidence for what I believe. And what am I going to say in that? Right? Yet we have a responsibility to understand that. We have a responsibility to understand the scriptures so that we can persuade, we can prove. We will now turn our attention to three distinct and influential disciplines that will help an expositor reflect on their text and specifically how it relates to Jesus and the gospel. The first one is called the historical critical method. It's important. Christianity is a faith grounded in history. Pastors often do not respect the exegetical side of their work, and they give in to overly simplistic theological reflection. And they either end up preaching a shallow gospel that's just kind of like tacked on to the end of a message, or they just preach doctrine instead of what is actually in the text. When this happens, it actually divorces Christianity from history. And there's a huge problem there. It's dangerous. If Old Testament passages are preached in a way that treats the historical situation that it's in as irrelevant and merely a springboard for the gospel, we promote the idea that Christianity is not interested in history. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. So take a moment for a second to really recognize the gravity of, of what is being said there, right? I mean, if we have a generation of preachers that are, ju- are doing this, essentially it's just like a, a game of, anybody play Where's, Where's Waldo? Right, you open the New Testament and you're just looking for the guy in the striped red suit with the hat. And you're just looking for Jesus. And it's like, oh, this talks about death. Oh, there he is. I can talk about the death of Christ, right? Okay, you're, you're, you're at least trying to connect it to the gospel, but you need to do it in an authentic, proper way. 
We are one generation of preachers away from the Bible being nothing more than moral mythology rather than truth. The question must be asked in in the theological reflection process, how can we reflect theologically on a biblical text without compromising its historical integrity? It must be asked. It's so important. Number two, the discipline of biblical theology. The discipline of biblical theology has the preacher take a step back and see the big picture and how it relates, all relates to the epicenter, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This discipline offers preachers a distinct benefit. It prevents merely intellectual and moralistic preaching. It's kind of that safeguard, right? You can can take what you're saying, and if you have a solid grasp of biblical theology, you're going to, in your head at least, have an understanding that you need to now connect this in an authentic way to Christ. Biblical theology legitimately takes you from a text in the Bible to the heart of the gospel. It keeps the main thing the main thing. How then does biblical theology work? How can biblical expositors use a biblical theology to prepare sermons? And how can we as church members, members of the congregation, also utilize biblical theology? Well, number one, I would say you need to get a biblical theology. You can't use what you don't have, right? That's pretty plain. What is the best way to get it? Well, it's pretty simple. It's to read the Bible consistently and completely. Nothing can prepare you better than to have a deep and internal knowledge of the whole Bible. Um, I grew up in London. I grew up in a uh, central Baptist church in London. When I was probably around 12 or 13, we moved uh, out to the outside of the city, and the name changed because we weren't the central part of London anymore. Um, but when we were there, this was just when I was younger, and this, this dear sweet lady passed away probably when I was about 9 or 10. But her name was Ina, and Ina was blind. Couldn't see. Ina was blind. Um, but Ina, and, and to be honest, I, I can distinctly remember this. I can't distinctly remember a whole lot of, of church in those years. I was a lot of times, just to be transparent, I was just kind of like a body in a pew. My, my thoughts were more to hockey than to really anything of theological um, value. Um, but I remember, I remember very well Ina because consistently our pastor could be preaching And he would come to a particular text and he would maybe forget the actual uh, text that was said in that particular passage. And he would ask Ina. Ina was completely blind, but she would spend her days at home with her Bible in Braille, memorizing the scriptures. And it was beautiful, right? Like eight years old, I'm sitting in a pew and it had a profound impact on me. I can distinctly remember Ina. I can remember what she looked like. I can remember her voice. And it was beautiful. She had large parts, not maybe even... Uh, to, to be honest, maybe even the, the whole Bible it, in her later years, her memory started to go a little bit, but she had massive parts of the entire Bible completely down to memory. It was absolutely beautiful. That's a great way to get a biblical theology. Read through scripture regularly and prayerfully. Look for the melodic line like we talked last week. Pray, read, meditate upon the text. Pray, read, meditate upon the text. Do it again and again, and again, and the Holy Spirit will bless you through the reading of, his, of God's Word. A.W. Tozer said you should think twice as much as you should read. That's important, right? Think about that. A lot of us, we live in such a digital age, a lot of us are just so consumed. We can have, uh, we can have podcasts on, we can have audiobooks, we can be in the Word, we, can, we have so many mediums to be filled 
but we never spend any time actually thinking about what we've been filled with, right? I think that, that quote by Tozer is right on. You should think about what you've listened to or what you've read twice as much as what you listen to or as what you read. Um, another great way and kind of an ironic way to get uh, a great uh, idea of biblical theology in a very simple form is a, a children's big yeah. storybook Bible. It's amazing. I've, I've been reading this one uh, to Hudson uh, before bed each night, and it's amazing the, the theological concepts that are packed into a children's storybook Bible. And it's, it's really nice and simple, too, which is kind of an added bonus. <laughs> uh, number two, follow the New Testament lead. The first theologians to link the Old Testament to the New Testament were the actual New Testament authors. It is hard to turn a page of the New Testament without finding reference back to the Old Testament. This is a gold mine. Follow these trails. It's extremely helpful for anyone engaging in biblical theology. If we take a look back for a second at Paul's speech in Athens on Mars Hill, it's actually a really good model for biblical expositors today and how they can move through the narrative of Scripture. We're not going to read it. We don't have time this morning. It's eight verses. But in Acts 17, 22 to 31, Paul successfully connects the two Testaments. A close look at these eight verses is actually remarkable. I suggest when you go home today, look at these verses. In eight verses, to an audience that has no prior, prior biblical knowledge, the Apostle Paul successfully goes from Genesis to Revelation. Eight verses, right? No prior biblical knowledge. It's amazing. I, I suggest you, you take a look closely at those eight verses. Number three, let's move along here, is make, go, uh, make good gospel connections. Uh, this morning we will look at three categories of connections. Number one is prophetic fulfillment. There are various places in the Old Testament where God makes a promise concerning the coming Messiah, and then the New Testament writers pick up on these prophetic writings and they fulfill the, they're, sorry, they show how Christ has fulfilled them. Let's, let's take a look really quickly and read Matthew 26, verse 53, starting in verse 53. Matthew 26, starting in verse 53. Matthew 26, 53, it reads, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for, for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no, no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook, uh, forsook him and fled. Jesus' life, if you look at Jesus' life, it was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It's, a, it's, it's amazing. The, the more you look at it, the more you can really see that his entire life was about that. The second one we'll look at this morning is historical trajectory. Now, I'm going to draw out a graphic. It's actually not on your handout, but if you want to, if you want to write this out, I would suggest you do it. Um, it it's, it's a tiny bit long, but bear with me because I've really thought a lot about this since I first saw it. Um, and it's really kind of helped me get a, a, bigger, a better, bigger picture idea of, of biblical theology as a whole. So if you take a look at this graphic, or this illustration, this is the redemptive work of Christ in an illustration. 
Number one, up here we have an eternal past. Right? Christ always was. Number two, we have incarnation. We have Christ condescending and coming to this earth in the form of a human baby. Number three, we have Christ's life. Number four, five, and six, I'm just going to group them together. We have death, burial, and resurrection. Right? Death, burial, resurrection. Number seven, uh, we have ascension. Uh, number eight, we have Christ seated in glory. Number nine, we have Christ's return. Now, number ten depends a little bit on your eschatology. We're not going to get into that this morning, so I'll just kind of do something like this. We have consummation. And then number 11, which goes up here, we have eternal future or eternal glory. Before I have to admit, before I came across this graphic, this illustration, I admittedly had a somewhat limited view on the gospel of Christ. To me, the gospel of Christ was Jesus dying, being buried, and rising again, which is foundational. That's so important, right? It, it, it hinges around that. But this is powerful, right? This is, this is the gospel. The gospel is so much more than, than just this little part right here. Yes, that is the foundation. Yes, everything hinges around that. But if you look at the redemptive work of Christ, it's so much more than just that one moment. Now let's connect this to our historical trajectory for a moment here. God reveals himself progressively. And so redemptive history possesses a direction and trajectory that culminates in Christ and the cross. So example, we could summarize redemptive history, and this is a little bit longer version of that, but we could summarize this creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. A biblical passage may refer to these in such a way that the passage can be placed within redemptive history. Connecting a text to the gospel can be as simple as showing as where it falls on this timeline. It's authentic, it's sincere, it's, it's, it's how you can authentically can connect that. Number three. Number three is look for themes. Another way of connecting the whole Bible to the gospel is through biblical theog- biblically theological, theological themes. Excuse me. Some of the larger themes you'll see in the Bible are kingdom, covenant, you see temple, priest, and sacrifice, you see exodus, exile, and rest. Let's look for a moment this morning just at exodus as an example. While it is a historical event recorded in the book of Exodus, it also introduces a repeated idea throughout Scripture. God delivers his people from slavery through trials to the place of his blessing. When the prophets start to describe the exile and return from exile, they describe it as the new Exodus. The theme of Exodus is then ultimately fulfilled in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So that is about the fastest look at biblical theology that you'll probably ever get. And with that being said, just because we have to keep moving, let's, let's turn now to another branch of, of theology that plays a role in theological reflection, and that's systematic theology. Andrew, give you just a break for a second. Yep. Um, I, I think we don't even realize how powerful this is, because over and over again, as you start reading, even in the Genesis account with, mm-hmm. with Adam, yep. the son of God, we see it in, in Egypt then, mm-hmm. when God's son was pulled out of Egypt, Israel's a nation, we see it in a royal sense with Solomon, yep. the royal son of God, yep. and, and that theme just continues where Christ is the son of God who actually fulfills all of That's those right. things. And so this is not just, you know, these are 
know, theological reflection, it's important to see it because the whole Bible connects Big like time. that. Big and time. It goes over and over again. The Exodus is the same thing. You're yep. right. Yeah. I would suggest spending a lot of time just thinking over this illustration, thinking about the parallels to it in, in Scripture throughout the Old Testament and, and then the, the New Testament. It's powerful. Systematic theology. Systematic theology helps you synthesize everything that is in the Bible in the form of doctrines. It organizes Scripture logically and hierarchically. I knew I was going to stumble on that one. I did. I'm sorry. Not historically and chronologically. Uh, D.A. Carson has a good definition of systematic theology. He says it's the branch of theology that seeks to elaborate the whole and parts of Scripture, demonstrating their logical rather than merely their historical connections. Now, while there is value in systematic theology, and it certainly does play a role in theological reflection, there is a caution that's in order uh, as far as biblical expositors using uh, systematic theology in their sermon preparation. Uh, Let's look to Charles Simeon and what he said uh, regarding this caution. He said, God has not revealed his truth in a system. The Bible has no system as such. Lay aside system and fly to the Bible. Receive its words with simple submission and without an eye to any system. Be Bible Christians, not system Christians. I think Simeon is right here. Think back to his convictions regarding the Word of God. So with that caution in mind, there are, there are benefits to systematic theology. I don't want to ex- expel it by any means. You just... Think specifically biblical expositors and in specifically in the context of sermon preparation, that caution does need to be there. But let's look at some of the benefits of systematic theology. Number one, it holds you to the faith. It provides constraint. It holds you to orthodoxy. When a pastor is in the process of exegesis, they will sooner or later come to a difficult passage, forcing them to make difficult exegetical choices. Back to the uh, passage in James that Dan landed on last week, right? That was a difficult passage. Certainly none of us are perfect, and therefore mistakes can happen. In these cases, the use of systematic theology provides sound doctrine to guide you through the difficult choices regarding a certain text. Uh, an example I thought of, uh, or an example that, that comes to mind, is James 2.14-16, to 16, right? Talking about faith and, and works, uh, a superficial reading of James two fourteen to sixteen is is uh, bound to suggest that salvation is maybe not simply by faith alone, but that works have kind of a major part to play in it. But by submitting your exegetical work to systematic theology, you will then have to wrestle with how Paul's salvation by faith alone is not actually speaking against what James is saying. Uh, regarding works. Number three, uh, it hones your, uh, uh, sorry, number two, it helps connect the gospel from particular genres. Uh, An example is biblical theology works well within narrative. However, it is more difficult to utilize the Old Testament poetry and New Testament epistles. These genres are more easily connected to the gospel through systematic theology, meaning you can utilize systematic theology in some of the more tricky parts of Old Testament poetry to actually help connect you uh, to the gospel. Number three, it hones your ability to speak to non-Christians. I think it's safe to assume that most new visitors walking through our church doors are not going to be like the Ethiopian eunuch 
eager to understand the book of Isaiah. It's probably just something that we can, we can take for granted. <laughs> they are probably, though, more likely going to ask difficult questions about evil, about God, and about redemption. The answers to these questions naturally flow from systematic theology. Therefore, connecting a text to systematic theology in the course of a sermon can go a long way to bring non-Christians into the Word of God. Although it needs to be exercised with caution, systematic theology can be a valuable part of the theological reflection process. Now, it needs to be... I need to stop right here for a moment and, and... talk about an extremely important part of not only theological reflection, but of the entire biblical exposition process, and that's prayer. You can't do any of this without it being saturated in prayer. Specifically with biblical the, uh, sorry, theological reflection, there's an interesting uh, insight that David Helm makes in his book that I want to draw you to this morning. Helm says there is an intimate connection between the revelation of the identity of Christ, seeing him as the fulfillment of scripture, and moments of quiet prayer. Turn your Bible this morning and turn to Luke 3, verse 21 to 20. Luke 3, 21 to 22. 21 reads, Now when all people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended into a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, thou art my beloved son in thee. I am well pleased. Meaning that Christ was revealed to them as Christ in the context of prayer. Flip over, flip over a few uh, pages here to chapter 9, verse 20, uh, sorry, 9, verse 18. 9, verse 18. 9, verse 18 reads, and before we, before we read this, place yourself in this situation right now, right? This text is being read. Place yourself there. Imagine what it must have been like. Verse 18 reads, and it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? And they they answering said, John the Baptist. But some say Elias. And others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. Can you imagine that moment? Right, That moment of realization. Right, We can see the full picture from where we're at today. Right? We can obviously see that Christ was Christ, that he went and that he died, and that was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. And because of that, we can now have a relationship with him. But, but the disciples at that point, they, they didn't have the full picture, right? Can you imagine that moment where Peter is saying, yeah, you, you are the, the Christ, right? Think about what that means. They have a full understanding of everything that went before them, right? All the, the Jewish background, the Jewish history. And all of a sudden, Peter says, yes. You are the Christ. Can you imagine that moment, that, that, that moment of realization, how beautiful that would have been? But again, the thing, that, the, the thing that I want to draw you to here is the fact that Christ is revealed in the context of prayer. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to look at the, the third one this morning, but in chapter 9, 28 to 36, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, he takes them up the mountain to what? Pray, right? Takes them up the mountain to pray. And then he is transfigured before them and revealed as Christ. 
if Jesus is revealed in preaching, if Christ is to be revealed as the center of all scriptures, then the preacher must begin the process of sermon preparation saturated in prayer. Don't miss this for the, the, the local church member, though. Because this is also a great lesson for us. So many of us expect to gain a deeper understanding of Christ, but we are not disciplined in being in His Word, in meditating upon it, and spending significant, authentic, and sincere time in prayer. So many of us just give the, the, the time of our day where we're not focused, we're not really fully aware, right? The lights might be on, but nobody's home. And that's the time that we give to prayer. We should be giving the best time of our day to reading God's word and to being in prayer. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to bed, opened my Bible, and I've read the same passage four times because I keep falling asleep, right? I'm not getting anything of value out of that. When I go to the Lord in prayer and I'm, I'm like starting to miss because I'm falling asleep, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being sincere. I'm not being authentic in coming before him in prayer. Give the best time of your day to prayer. I, you know, I think that that's part of the the reflection that we have as just who we are, you know. Yep. And and when it doesn't happen, that we don't, you know, um, always get down on ourselves, but that we go to the Lord. Yep. For for something real, mm-hmm. you know, and say, Lord, I I need you, you know, because prayer is absolutely, you know, just exactly that. So yeah. Part of that reflection too. For sure. Who we are. For sure. And it, I think it, it also it really goes to show us the feebleness of our flesh, right? That we can't, that we can't dig in. We're so distracted all the time. But, but to, to be disciplined and to develop, to develop that discipline to do that is so, so important. Absolutely. But what I'm saying is I think it, it is developed when we pray yes. and confess. Yes, you're right. And God works, yep. you know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have one more illustration for you this morning that I I want you to look at. It is a a, a very powerful illustration as well. Um, And it's not only for the process of theological reflection, but it really hits all parts of biblical exposition. Uh, This one is on your uh, handout, so you can follow along as we go here. And uh, be ready with your Bible, because we're going to get in. I'm going to have you actually do an example. Um, But it's, it's the line of Scripture, and specifically... Specifically to hold the line or stay the line. Tell the truth like it is. A preacher must hold fast to this line, the line of Scripture. Now, this is something that is very difficult to do, but one of the responsibilities of someone who handles the Word of God is that they desperately need to cling to this line. If they misrepresent Scripture, they misrepresent God. That's that's a pretty heavy statement. A preacher must avoid sub and super interpretations of the text. They must hold the line. So if we look above the line and below the line, above the line is saying more and below is saying less. Turn really quickly, guys, and this, we'll end with this this morning to um, Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 1 to 3. Uh, tragic passage in the Old Testament, probably one of the most tragic passages that you will read in the Bible. Genesis 3, verse 1 to 3. Just before you read that this morning, just to give you an example of what I mean by above the line, below the line, 
above the line, an example of being above the line or adding to the text would be legalism. Right? Importing a whole lot of rules into what is already said in Scripture. Another one would be the prosperity gospel. Again, importing a whole lot of what is said in the text to your overall view of of how, how things should run. What about below? Well, below you could put liberalism. Thomas Jefferson, the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson is known as a great father of American independence, and he is. He was a great man. Uh, but he actually took passages of Scripture that he did not like, and he tore them out of his Bible. And it was called the Jefferson Bible. It's kind of a problem with that. <laughs> and lawlessness, right? Okay, Christ died for us. We are now purchased by his blood. Let's do whatever we want, right? That would be below the line, taking away of Scripture. Now, read Genesis 3, 1-3. to Really quickly, and I want you to see if you can deduce between Eve and between the serpent, who's going above the line and who's going below the line. Genesis 3, 1 to 3, who's going above the line, who's going below the line. Now, it may take some prior knowledge. We're going to test your knowledge of Genesis here as well, but does anybody have an idea of who's gone above the line, who's gone below the line? Yes. Satan is uh, below the line because he's... Uh, he's taking away. Very, yeah, very much so. Yeah, so we have this. We have Satan down here for sure. And Eve, definitely above the line because she's Yeah, that's right. That's it. That's exactly right. So Eve is going above the line. Now, an interesting observation here is out of the two of these, right, going above the line, below the line, they're both bad. But Eve's is probably much more understandable, right? Is is we're not allowed to eat the fruit of this particular tree. Let's not even go near it, right? It's like saying um, uh, we're, we're camping at a really beautiful place, but there's a massive uh, cliff with a 300-foot drop. Okay, so the rule is don't jump over the cliff. Well, the family rule now is going to be don't go within 100 feet of the cliff, right? That's kind of the same thing that Eve is doing here, and that's somewhat understandable, right? Like she's just putting safeguards in place. However, let's change the history a little bit. What if Eve actually won the day? What if Eve won the day, and by adding that extra rule, she successfully stayed away from that, sin didn't enter the world? What, what, what would have happened? She's essentially voiding the line, right? Think about it. All she's doing is she's replacing the line with religion, with rules, with legalism, right? That's not good. Yes. We are going to end there this morning, um, but I would encourage you in, in different passages of Scripture, use this illustration, the line of Scripture. Uh, who is going above? Who is going below? You can use that with some of the uh, New Testament passages talking about the Pharisees. It's fascinating to see how far above or how far below certain parties are going above or below that line. We have looked at three weeks of expositional preaching. Um, I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed it. Um, I, I also hope that you were able to take as much from it as I was in not being a preacher. Right? Expositional preaching is pre, uh, preacher uh, preparing for a sermon in the different processes he can. But you can also certainly use that uh, as simply a member of a congregation.